Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I am here. I'm Ben Myers. Uh, to remind you, I'm a market research guy, and we have Mr. Steve Cameron. Co-host, Steve Co-host, C. Steve Cameron. How he you doing? On the lending side of the business. For, Cameron for Stevens those, Mortgage Capital. Yeah, for those that are new to the show. So, Steve, I was uh, I was talking to a potential guest, and and they didn't they didn't actually know who you were, but they had listened to erroneous. Me. Yes, I don't believe it. <laughs> they hadn't listened to the show. Who they was said, it? "I'm not going to tell you." Uh, and they said, <laughs> "Is Steve trying to be funny?" <laughs> <laughs> they had listened or hadn't listened. They had, they had listened to a show. And they said, Steve trying to be. I'm like, I think we're both trying to be funny, but we're just not very good at it. I actually disagree. I think we <laughs> don't try to be funny, but sometimes people laugh. <laughs> Naturally, <laughs> yes. at how humorous we are. So the uh, I remember a couple of years ago, pre-COVID, and uh, I had a presentation to do, and I'm like, I'm like, you know what? I'm just as funny as Ben Tal. I can put a couple jokes into my presentation. A couple jokes? Why not? I'll throw a couple jokes in there. All right. <laughs> and so, uh, so the, the worst was I decided I was going to do this first one for King Set Capital. Okay. Uh, everyone out there wearing their white shirt and their plain suit and blue I, tie, and I, I cracked the joke. Leave the pause. Crickets. Nothing. Nothing. And uh, and our friend Ouch. Frank Margani was like, stick to the stats. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Frank Margani's first shout out on the podcast? Yeah. Might be Frank the wow. Bank. Frank, Frank the Bank. The uh, Bank. Anyways. Anyway, so did you tell him I was funny or not funny? I said you're 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 funny in your own unique way. It's a bad answer. Speaking of unique, <laughs> this show is sponsored by the Plus Group. And they're comprised of five distinct companies. RN Design, SRN Architects, Sailfish Sales Software, Kool-Aid Studios, and Studio Uno ID. Offering services in marketing, architecture, interior design, and real estate software. Their mission is simple. Revolutionize the real estate industry through efficiency, innovation, and quality while adding value to the client experience. For more information on the Plus Group or any of their five companies, visit theplusgroup.ca. If you like this show, please support our sponsors. Stephen. Yes. I shouldn't say Stephen. I should say for today, you're Steve. just Steve. Steve is good. Or Steve, Steve. <laughs> See, Steve. That's funny. That's funny. See? <laughs> we have a guest. I got to work on my material. I'm actually pretty gutted right now. I don't even know if I can carry on with the show. <laughs> ben Myers told we're, me I was We're just going to press pause and you're just going to write a few jokes yeah, gotta, right now? I got to come with material next time. <laughs> Today's guest is actually also a Stephen. Stephen Job. Not Jobs. Not Don't make the joke or you get kicked off from listening to this show. <laughs> yeah. Stephen leads the development team at 10 Block Developments, a Toronto housing developer with over 6,000 high-density homes currently in the planning pr- approval process. Stephen received his honors BA from the University of Toronto and his master's of planning and graduate certificate in real estate development from the University of Southern California. Stephen is also a member of the American Institute of Certified Planners. In 2021, he was appointed by the Toronto City Council to the Property Standards Committee, where he adjudicates appeals related to the Ontario Building Code and Toronto Municipal Code, and he is a board member of the Summerhill Residents Association. Prior to his current role at 10 Block, Stephen worked in planning and development at Diamond Corp., 
Shout out Diamond Corp, shout former guest. Yeah, Main and Main. Shout out Main and Main, former guest. And an investment uh, analyst at Crest Point Realty in Toronto. And Brookfield Properties and Stockdale Capital Partners in Los Angeles. Sure. What a resume. West, what? Wow. West Side. Coming West back. West Side. To, I like it. East. We yeah. got a lot to talk about. Welcome to the show, Stephen. <laughs> Joe, guys, thank you so much for the chance. <laughs> that was a no problem. That was a very long intro. We just let him sit there stewing for a little while. Yeah, well, yeah. we uh, we uh, we find that to be funny yeah, when so, uh, yes. you know, not yeah. funny. No, no, no. <laughs> let's 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 get into it. Let's get you got into any jokes. Do you want to tell jokes? Getting funny before <laughs> we start. <laughs> Admittedly, I have been laughing since I came in the room. So. <laughs> So That's let's good. let's get into it. You're you're a recent graduate from the University of Toronto. How did you get out to Cali? You know, was the rap scene? What was that drew you out there? Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I I am a Tupac stand, by the way. It is it is West Coast all the way. Um, no, like I it's we we'll play rewind a little bit if we want. But I went out to USC because I knew I wanted to go to planning school. Like this was this was the key to the path I wanted to take. And it's it's worked out. Like planning has been the the edge and the focus for my career pretty much since then. But at the time, I don't know if it's still true now, but at the time, um, I, I could not find an Ontario planning school where I could get a pretty deep business education at the same time. And I had come from an undergrad, uh, poli sci philosophy, urban studies, and I knew I needed some number skills, some business chops. And, uh, you know, I, I was not looking for training for municipal planning or consulting planning that, that just wasn't calling to me. So, um, I applied to a bunch of schools in the States. I got into USC, Penn, UCLA. So I went down to LA and checked out the two schools there. And, um, you know, I got this sense and, and it turned out to be right that USC was a place where you could do a core planning curriculum, but get a lot of cross-pollination, business school, architecture school, they have construction management degrees. And I think more importantly, the thing that drew me there was like business exposure. Every week or a couple times a week, there were executives in, there were uh, practitioners in, there were site tours, just a like a kind of boots on the ground exposure to the business. Um, and, and that appealed to me. Like, you know, I had done my undergrad in, in the books, but I wanted to learn the business. Um, so, I mean, that's what took me down. I worked there for a while. I did, uh, I ended up working a couple investment jobs down there, uh, a private equity shop and then Brookfield property partners doing acquisitions, which was good. I mean, it's high volume, lots of markets, got to see a lot of different deals, but you know, my, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife was back here, my family's here and it's a local business. You know, it, I think there are some businesses where you can really pick up and move to any like great city in the world. But uh, my experience is real estate is not that. Hmm. I knew I wanted to be in Toronto. And so I, I hustled back here and, uh, and, and no regrets. I mean, it's been, it's been great. I, I got what I wanted to get in California. Um, it was two years of sunshine. The dollar was at par at the time. That's nice. Which mm -hmm. was good. But um, yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, 
people ask me to do market studies in Vancouver mm-hmm. and Calgary and all these other places. And I just, you know, maybe in the future, you know, we expand, but you know, I like to pitch myself as I've been in this market for, for, for 20 years. I know the players, yeah. I know the sites, I know the locations. I can wrap my head around it. I can give you a really good answer. Right. In terms of what you're looking for. So yeah, I find it interesting when we had, uh, you know, windmill developments on and how they're active in, you know, all these markets in, in across Canada. And I'm like, how can you, how can you know them good enough to make these types of big bets? Right. But, um, yeah, it's always a, it's always an interesting thing. So, so what, what eventually drew, drew you back? Like what was the first job that you did, did you take? Did you decide to move back before you sought a job or did you get a job before you moved back? I, you know, I don't remember. I was kind of coming back and forth a lot and we, almost we almost stayed in LA like my wife is a dual citizen and she worked she was working in TV production so there's tons of jobs down there of course. I had opportunities in LA but uh, I, I met this guy named Colin McKellar when Crest Point was like five people or six people at the time a very small but quickly growing and motivated shop and at the time I was really I was really kind of uh, just by happenstance, I was really interested in the investments, the acquisition side of the business. Uh, I, I got an exciting job offer from Crest Point to join as an analyst, and um, you know, I don't, I don't know what tipped the scales, but probably a, trying to guess where I wanted to spend decades. You right. know, I, I tried to look into the future and think, okay, where do I want to raise a family? Where do I want to get deep in my career and get to know people better and so on? And at LA was a, a ton of fun and, and we go back, we enjoy it, but it, it was, you know, it's not home. Mm-hmm. Were um, you born and raised in Toronto? Uh, Oakville, West Oakville. City, and then moved downtown for, for U of T and haven't looked back. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was the same thing. I'm like, yeah. I worked in Texas after I graduated from, from university down there. And I just said, you know, I don't want my kids to be Americans. <laughs> you know, that's just ultimately that was like, I'm Canadian, right? Yeah. That's who I am. And, and, uh, yeah, I want to be back home and see my family on a regular basis as opposed to twice a year. Right. So, uh, Tell, tell us a little bit about uh, about the move back and, and uh, starting your career at Crest Point. Obviously, probably you said you were the sixth employee there. Um, That's probably about right, and it and it's grown like gangbusters. It has, I mean, yeah, it has. So, so tell us about your time there, what you worked on, and then why you ultimately left to go yeah. work with uh, Bob and Steven. Yeah, it it was an awesome experience. I got to tell you, like, what a great place to start my career back in Toronto. Um, I worked primarily under a guy named Devin Housem, who was leading the investments. And Shout out Devin. Yeah. He's a Philadelphia Eagles fan, one of my favorite <laughs> guys in the true. city. This is true. And you just, know had what? A, just had another child, too. Congrats, bud. I did not know that. Congrats. I follow his wife. His wife and I went to the university together, so a uh, little uh, connection there, but he's a great guy. Michelle. Smart guy, too. Michelle, yeah. Yeah, yeah Michelle's great. Um, they, you know, De- Devin was... A great person to learn under because he had he had a a combination of deal experience and street smarts, rigorous analytics, and and had kind of set up a process. Like I still even now when I go through due diligence or underwrite a property, like Devin is sitting on my shoulder coaching me, uh, you, you know, metaphorically. And um, <laughs> you know, we're we're buying at the time the firm was buying. I think there was some retail in Vancouver. It was at the time it was only commercial, so it was retail, industrial, and office. They had not moved into multi-res yet, and there was a little bit of development activity, but not a lot. Um, I was like the 
junior bottom guy on the totem pole for a big acquisition of 101 industrial properties across uh, the U.S. and Canada. I think there were 85 in Canada uh, and 16 in the U.S. That was a uh, a joint venture with H&R and PSP Investments, if I recall correctly, uh, from Montreal. And Every time I touched an acquisition that had any sort of development or planning aspect to it, I was like magnetically drawn to that. So we did, we bought the Blue Mountain Plaza at like where 26 turns to 26 in Collingwood, you know, Crystal Buffet on the corner and Cineplex in the back. And uh, that one had a little bit of planning hair on it, you know, not, not a ton. It wasn't a major development site, but I just like, I couldn't look away from the planning stuff. And in that case, the zoning bylaw didn't match the OP and there was this question about like, well, is this unit in compliance or not? And I just loved this part of it and realized I was not going to be able to do full-time planning and development at, at Crest Point. Like that was a right. very laser focused mission and that wasn't, you know, the mission at the time. I mean, they have grown into more development to their credit. So like there's a ton of value add happening there and in smart ways. But, you know, I started kind of keeping my eyes out and then I reconnected with your last guest, Daniel Byrne, at some social event. We had met many years prior, early in my career, like my pre-grad school career. And Maine and Maine was growing and there was an opportunity to just kind of jump in the deep end on a bunch of development stuff. And I kind of just closed my eyes and jumped and thought like, this is my break in job. I don't know. I've never worked a full-time development job, but like I'm just drawn to this. I feel like I need to do this. So there is a part of me, I got to tell you, there's a part of me that regrets that I didn't put more years in at Crest Point because I mean, those are smart people doing smart deals. I I sat, I had the desk outside Kevin Leon's office. And if you know, or have ever done business with Kevin, he likes to go on speakerphone and, and yell. (laughs) Okay. And, and like, he's, he's a deal shark. Like the guy gets deals done. His instinct for the path through a deal to finish, to start, keep the momentum going and finish a deal is like exceptional. And I got to like, there were times where I would be at my desk. I don't know. I'm supposed to be updating an Argus model for like the Q3 nav valuation or whatever. And I'm just sitting there like listening to his phone call. And it was like another degree in like how to do deals. So, and anyways, like long answer, but the just full-time investments and acquisitions wasn't, it wasn't the right like trench for me to be in. Right. I I wanted to do the development stuff. So you went to Maine and Maine Mm -hmm. and work, did you work under Daniel there? Is that that, uh, another degree? In development, for sure, and that was what a smart guy he is as well. For sure, for sure, I learned I learned a ton from Daniel, and it was it was some Ottawa, it was some Toronto, and the fun part about that was I got dropped into a bunch of uh, development files in various stages. Like some were kind of old acquisitions where the development needed someone to just focus and move it forward. Some like one of the ones I worked on station place with him, like the one at Kipling mobility hub under Daniel, he had done the rezoning, but like the bylaw hadn't been passed through council yet. Cause there were a couple conditions to clear the site plan had to be done. It was moving toward permit, moving towards construction. And so being able to work on a couple different projects at different stages of the cycle, it's not the same as taking a project through the full cycle, but you're learning 
you know, the whole cycle simultaneously, if that makes sense. Um, and it was, it was good. It was exciting, grew a lot, learned a lot. And it was a really good crew of people. Like main, I mean, was fun. It was a really fun office. It was, I don't know if you guys know Rick Ifelis, the founder there. I don't know him, but I've heard a lot. of. Yeah. I mean, huge personality, uh, great instinct, but Rick and Daniel wanted to like build a family there and they did. It was like Liberty village. We were in brick and beam upstairs space in Liberty village. And it was like team lunch every day, you know, drinks after work constantly, just like a solid group of people. Adrian Terapaki worked there. He's now, I don't know, running the shop at slate. It seems, I think he's a VP of development at slate, you know, some other, other alums you would know for sure. And it was just this good crew, like all rowing in the same direction. Sounds like fun. Sounds like my kind of place to be. Yeah, it was good. It was good. But you left. (laughs) I left. (laughs) I left. So what Um, happened? You know, nothing. It it was another one of these where I wasn't, um, it's not that I was moving away from something, but towards something else. And, and I wanted to be like a planner planner, really get deep into policy and like good planning work. And, you know, I, I had been hearing the name diamond corp for years, didn't know anybody there, had never really come across them. Um, but they posted a job, they posted a development manager opportunity, uh, which was, you know, going to be a step up in my career. And I learned what the projects would be that I would work on. And, and like, that was the clincher right. for me. So I just went really hard at that opportunity, uh, ended up getting it. And, um, I was coming in as this amazing woman named Lucy Cameron was, was retiring from the business. She was, a, a VP of development who had been there for many years. And she, with her colleague, you know, soon to be my colleague, Lauren Tolstom had just finished, uh, rezoning the well with Steve Diamond and with the partners at Rio Cannon Allied, and it needed to be taken through site plan. And I had developed kind of an expertise for site plan just through a few experiences at Maine and Maine and through luck, persistence, and constantly putting up my hand, I got assigned to that file. And that was, you know, probably the most exciting and interesting and challenging project I've worked on. You know, I was, there were, f- I think, five or six simultaneous site plan applications for the various components of the project. <laughs> and I I had the the, for- the misfortune, the fortune of being kind of the, the one person in the middle of it, you know, like the traffic cop. There's no, it, if anyone tells you like, oh, I did the well, it, they're lying, right? <laughs> this, this is like a huge, huge team, uh, dozens and dozens of architects. I mean, just, just so many layers. Of course. In, in yeah. Five, yeah. six we, partners. We discussed it with Tridel. We yeah. discussed it with yeah. Bob. Yeah. And I, I'm sure yeah. we'll have someone from Woodburn Capital on the yeah. show and yourself. So yeah. we're going to get it from all the angles. So it was, I mean, I, I worked on the well, uh, I worked on Upper East Village, uh, which was in partnership with um, uh, Camaros Falcorp. Uh, that that was another one that had been zoned and was moving towards implementation. So and Eg- Eglinton and Laird. Eglinton and Laird, you yeah. got it. And uh, Reunion Crossing. Reunion Crossing was the first Diamond Kilmer project. Did you guys talk about Diamond Kilmer? No, I don't. I know I'm some sure guys at Kilmer who have talked about Diamond. I've talked to yeah. Bob about the Kilmer guys, but I don't think we've ever yeah. had a chat yeah. on here. I, I think I think that's right. Like I don't remember hearing about that. The so this was you know this is a a new manifestation of a long standing relationship between those family businesses and, you know, 
highly credible and successful developers to uh, sell market, sell and build out uh, product. You know, these were the Kilmer Brownfield team were are the best in the business for soils, water remediation and uh, getting land ready. And, you know, I don't think anyone can rezone and approve land better than Bob and Steve and the rest of the team there. But they, was, it, was it contaminated that time? Uh, it, it was actually. It was uh, Kilmer brought Kilmer Brownfield brought that site um, together. I wasn't there when it came together, so I don't know exactly what the sequence was. But the land in the back. This is at St. Clair and Old Weston Road, and there's a mid-rise on the front and towns in the back being built now. Um, I think nearing completion. They're probably topped off on the mid-rise building. Imperial Oil had had a I think a gas station in the block on the front. And, you know, Kilmer is a known and trusted buyer of Imperial Oil lands because when you are owning, decommissioning and selling gas stations, you can't just sell to the highest bidder. Like you need to make sure that liability is dealt with properly, that the property is going to be cleaned up properly. Like like there's legacy matters, there's financial matters, there's liability matters. And so Kilmer had uh, had a line into the Imperial Oil site. I think the story goes that the Diamond Corp team had hooked up with Create. TO, which I think it was Build Toronto at the time, is now Create TO, which had tried to develop the back of the site, a former works yard, as a, I think it was semis for a time, it was towns for a time, it was with Habitat, but it kind of couldn't get off the ground because there wasn't a critical mass of density of market product to to pay basically you would have had to gone you would have had to go to general revenues like general tax revenue and i don't think that was there in the budget so you combine the sites you remediate an old site and frankly you use the density of the mid-rise building to pay for the remediation of the properties delivering affordable housing in the back and you've got this nice little community with a lane running through it a full block of habitat towns four more blocks of market towns then like a nice mid-rise building fronting onto St. Clair. So that's one I worked on through my time there. And it, it, it is really gratifying to see that one be built. That, that was a good one. That was like a lot of winners on that project. This is, this is an off-topic question. Maybe yeah. don't even know it. What is the landowner's responsibility hmm. for contamination that happens outside of their own lands? I, I don't think there's like a two sentence answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you there's not, but it's your responsibility. If, yeah. if the contamination is coming from your site and your contaminants leak to the neighboring site or their neighbor or their neighbor, or even, you know, further down the, the block, ultimately you're responsible. Now it depends who you bought it from. Depends what the use was. Depends if it's oil. Oil is different than like dry cleaning solutions, for example, Dry cleaning, I think, is probably worse than oil. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. it's uh, it, it's probably the worst one. But yeah, I think, and then and then you get an indemnity from from the vendor. Like if you buy from Imperial Oil, for example, like they should indemnify you from any risk. But how much risk for how long? Yeah, it, it gets pretty murky. But I would also say, like today, these sites trade much more frequently with less risk than they did even five or ten years ago. Like I remember, ten years ago, dirty sites were very scary. Yeah, people would. People but would today, buy yeah, yeah. I mean, like the engineering's got a lot better, and you know, you just bathtub these things, and you kind of like take care of your little area and and dig out all the crap. Generally, like that's just, that that's not always like it's not a hundred percent fix, but it, it's it's better today, I think, than it was. Yeah. Like I said, even five ten years ago. Well, let's let's discuss the site that's in my neighborhood because Uh-oh. that was actually the first <laughs> the first 
consulting job that I took on was Diamond Corp for the the Birchley project at uh, Victoria Park and uh, and Gerard and you you reached out to me so uh, interesting connection there so was that one of your projects you were, were you actively worked on or are you just touching that one a little bit no you know that that's when I would hear about around uh, like around the boardroom table if if I recall, that is another Diamond and Kilmer and Create TO site. And the fun part about working at Diamond was it wasn't it wasn't like the easy, obvious sites. The I think the acquisitions where Diamond could get an edge or off-market transactions that would come in through the door had complexity to them. You know, these were not simple, straightforward. Oh, the secondary plan says 35 stories. You just got to run through like a, a standard rezoning. It, it's it's not that. And so that means you're you're getting a level deeper or several level deeper levels deeper into research, uh, planning research, historical research, land use, uh, environmental soils, or complexity of relationships. You know, multi ownership things, things where you've got to strike a deal with a neighbor, but maybe the neighbor doesn't realize that yet or isn't interested coming to the table. Um, As I understand it, the site you're talking, I think they call it 411 Victoria Park. Yeah. Um, it's got all of that and more. Yeah. It's 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 kind of ridiculous. I mean, it's all mid-rise, yet it's walking distance of the subway. Yeah. Right? It's one and of those that ones. doesn't seem like something that would bother you or I. <laughs> it's just so, so ridiculous. Like, even guy, one of the guys I had played softball with, he has this sign on his, on his front mm-hmm. yard. It's like, no high-rises. And I'm like, why not? You know, why wouldn't you want high-rises there? It's like, not even anywhere near your house. Yeah. Oh, I don't want it to be a ghetto. I'm like, well, they're all going to be going to be condominiums. It's, you know, and not to say that all rental, low income rental is a ghetto, but like, it's just so silly that people get in their mind, they read something in the newspaper and they just think, oh, high density, bad, right? You know, so it's just it's unjustified. It's, and, such and a, it's just a waste of a massive, massive site that they're just going to build mid rise in, in townhomes where in when it's literally, you can walk underneath the, the tracks and you're right there at the yeah. right there at the subway, right? So, I have often wondered what is the like where does the instinct come from of people who are not deeply involved in land use and like who who don't you know this is not their profession they do something else and then they see that a change is proposed and the instinctive reaction is like no there there can't be change like it's too tall or it has to be this or it has to be that well I think I think humans generally are 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 afraid of change. Yeah. I think, mm-hmm. I think, I don't know if afraid is the right word, but I think, you know, it's like our gut reaction is change is bad. Right. Yeah. And you I know think, what's there now. It doesn't offend you. Something that goes there could offend you. Right. You're comfortable with what's there, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you know it. And, and, you know, generally humans are lazy and comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a sad state of affairs, but I do want to ask you a, qu- a quick question because I think we, we probably bumped heads on Twitter at some point in time during during the process, but then you left Twitter as yourself. Yeah. So what what was the straw that broke the camels? But what what was it? You just said, forget this. I'm deleting this app. I'm out of He's here. smart. He's got a good <laughs> head on his shoulders. Yeah, I think He's got it. way more better use of his time. I almost <laughs> tweeted that the other day. It's like every person that I used to interact with on Twitter has quit. 
I'm the only, like, I'm one of the only people that's been on for like 10 years. And I'm, I, I you know, when I get to my thousand followers, Ben, I'm out of here too. Trust yeah. me. I'm like, I'm like at the 980, 985, 15 more followers and I'm out. Okay. Anyone listen to the show, press pause on the podcast, go on and follow the one Stevie C on, on Twitter. Or I'm just going to go under like, you know, what really bugs me is the people on Twitter who like chirp people. But they don't have like an avatar. They don't have their own name. They're just like this. Like, they're yeah, like, you're you're biased because you make so much money in the development industry. I'm like, well, how do I know what you do? Yeah. Right? Who are you? you? Know? Are you even a human? <laughs> yeah, you're just a Russian bot, uh, the NIMBY bot. Someone has probably programmed that, the NIMBY bot. Anything that I, says I'm development, sure that has happened. you are biased. You just want to make big profit. <laughs> so why did you why why did you leave Twitter? Honestly, yeah, let's, yeah, let's uh, hear it. Let's hear it. You know, question. I don't know if I remember exactly when or why, but I I think there were times when it kind of became all consuming and just like, I, I get sucked in. I get really like hot under the collar sometimes when I, when I see, like, I I can't resist if I'm on Twitter, I can't resist an argument about like land use. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, well, I know something about that and I don't think that's right. Or I want to call this out, but, um, you know, like life gets busy um, and I, I think it really came down to just wanting to focus on like work, work hard during my work hours and then like put it away and like go live my life afterwards. And there are some people who are like, oh yeah, I'll log on to Twitter like, you know, once a day or a couple times a week. I, I can't do it. It's <laughs> not my personality. I'm like, the phone comes out of my pocket every five minutes. And it, it just, you know, I think there were times when it became all consuming and I'd get like all riled up and I thought like, what, what, what am I getting out of this? Yeah. You know, like I can either argue on the internet <laughs> or like work hard at building housing and like mixed use stuff and, and just focusing and getting on with yeah. it. So I, 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 I sometimes look and then see how many tweets I did in a day. And if I did too many tweets, I know that I've, I've yeah. failed that yeah. I have been distracted too yeah. much. Right. And I'm the same way. Right. I, I, I feel like no one defends developers. You know, we're getting, we're getting a little bit more of that. And, and, and we, we, we talked a little bit about that as a potential topic of this, of this discussion is, is hardly anyone defends developers and they're creating jobs and they're creating housing. You know, no one gets mad at someone that makes a grocery store, right? You need food, you know, <laughs> we need a grocery store. Let's build a grocery store. Actually, no one- I would disagree. I think that a lot of people get mad at any use, any read going back to like change, <laughs> like someone buys a site and they're going to redevelop it and put, uh, I don't know, like a whole bunch of new uses there, be it retail, office, industrial. That, that bothers people the same way that it bothers yeah. them with condos. Maybe not as much, yeah. but you know, a lot of times people don't even realize too. Like if you look at what streetcar, just the first one that comes to my mind is streetcar at uh, on Gladstone. Like you know, he did like four towers there, and he put the, a massive grocery store in, in the in the ground floor. I think it's a Loblaws. Like that was probably contentious with the NIMBYs in the area at the time. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, church, but it's true. No one does defend uh, developers, and they they get a bad rap for sure. Yeah, and we've talked about it. I mean, you know, you can't build a development with zero profit. It just doesn't doesn't happen, right? Like you can't go in and say I'm going to make no money on this just because I like my purchasers and I want to charge something <laughs> that that's, yeah. uh, that has no no value. So so yeah, maybe let's just you know we were jumping around a little bit, but um, let's talk about ten block. 
So are we going? Yeah, well, let's get into that. Yeah, yeah. let's get into that. I'm, okay. I'm interested. I'm excited to talk about 10 Block. Yes, yeah, so we're, we're this far into the podcast. We haven't even talked about your current <laughs> company. So, yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what, 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 is, what, what, what are you guys doing? You, we, got, we had, you got the 6,000 units on, on you, the way. And, and if you don't mind, tell them, tell me personally, because I'm really interested. Just a bit about like the history of the company, <laughs> yeah. who the founders are, and uh, sort of the makeup of, of the team as yeah. well. Yeah. I, I couldn't believe the 6,000 number when I was, I had to write a bio for this ULI mentorship program. And I'm like, how many units do we have? Like, we're just so busy doing the work that I hadn't stopped to to kind of tally the numbers for a while. But like, you know, that's 6,000 back to this briefly back to this topic of, you know, the bad rap developers get that is going to be 6,000 homes for people to live in. And like, I'm, I'm not ashamed that that is my business building housing. So this, I mean, that is the focus of 10 block. It is a housing developer. Uh, There is a mixed use component to several of the projects, but others are all residential. Where did the name come from? Let's start really right in the beginning. Do you know? (laughs) Uh, I, I, I do know it's, a bit of a boring story. So I'm still working on like, you know, the Hollywood version, like, like inventing the history after the name has been created. My yeah. great grandfather lived in the 10 block in yeah. New York city. Yeah. And they uh, said when he moved away that it would be 10 block developments. The, the one I like is like Toronto did originally have 10 blocks downtown, like in the downtown East side, there were 10 blocks originally surveyed in Toronto. That is not the origin of the name. But <laughs> if, if in four years from now you see, that on our website and you happen to be a podcast listener, you will know, you will understand the genesis of that idea. It's, it's yeah. Well, Hey, hey, a a creative, uh, revisionist history. No. So, so 10 block is sort of a new manifestation of a, of a very old business. Um, I, I work with a real estate family that has been building homes in Toronto for three generations and they were refugees and survivors of, of war and the Holocaust in Europe. And and came to Toronto and and built slowly, gradually. You know, the story goes sort of a house and then two houses and then a something low rise and then some more. And I think there was obviously a commercial enterprise and and an element of timing. You know, the 60s, the late 50s to early 70s in Toronto were major boom time. We still have not seen the rate of housing creation that peaked at that time. It's been it's actually we still haven't recovered to like 1970s or late 60s levels. The portfolio that's held by uh, the family business includes some large sites that were developed as Tower in the Park at the time. And so in some cases, there's some excess land, or in some cases, there's like a very small building on a very large piece of property. And step one, a couple of years ago, when this started, I would I was like the first full-time planner development person who, who came in. Step one was sort of triage the properties and identify what should we look, which sites should we look into as potential development sites? And some were kind of hit you over the head, obviously. Yeah. Like, okay, so, you know, this is a growing location. There's some excess land. There's infrastructure there's road access. Okay. So you're going to develop that site, but others of these were much more difficult. And we've actually ended up proposing a number of rental replacement properties, um, which, you know, it took us a long time to come to that conclusion, but the more we looked into some of these old 
buildings from the 50s and assessed their physical condition. You know, they're safe. They're built to code. They're kept to code. They score very well on rent safe. These are quality landlords who I think do well by their tenants. And that's the feedback we've heard. But these were not buildings that could be, you know, repurposed or expanded or, you know, you keep the structure and then build some more. Um, it, It became clear over time that the path for some of these properties would be to take down old buildings when there was an opportunity to significantly increase uh, the height. So of the four rental replacement uh, applications we are either working on or have filed an application for, um, the ratio is about one to five for every existing apartment unit that we're proposing to uh, to take down, uh, five more will be built in addition to 100% replacement. So just by the nature of the portfolio, that became a central part of the business. And, you know, it's really delicate work because you get a lot of valid questions and concerns uh, with that kind of proposal. Like, is it good for the environment to be taking down old buildings uh, instead of reuse or retrofit or rehabilitation or using the structure or something like that. And, you know, we, we can explore that, but that's like one of the, one of the categories of questions. We who, get. Who, who, what, who, who brings that up? Uh, you know, we've got a that. very specific question. I didn't even think about that, yeah. to be honest. You know, it, it's this topic of embodied carbon and the idea of, you know, you've spent a lot of carbon has been um, or has been or is emitted into the atmosphere when you do a major construction project, like the creation of the manufacturing of steel, uh, the making of concrete, all the truck action to and from the site, Mm -hmm. you know, soil disposal, trucking, all this stuff um, emits a lot of carbon. So, you know, the question we get is, well, a lot of carbon was emitted for these towers or these low rise buildings, whatever the case is when they were built, isn't it wasteful to just tear that down and then start over mm-hmm. with a new building? Good but, point. you know, the amazing thing we found, we, we spent a lot of time and, and money actually with engineers looking at this question. The old buildings are so inefficient and hemorrhage so much energy and new ones, even if you're just building to a code standard and to the lowest tier of the green standard in Toronto, which we're not going to do. But even if you did the basic, you know, you're four to five times more efficient in in a new unit. And there's there's like a carbon break even that happens. Yes. For the first couple of years of operations of a new building, um, your your carbon negative like like it's negative is in bad right you're you've emitted a bunch of extra carbon but over time because of the better uh, efficiency of the new building it eventually catches up to and surpasses the old building so after there's like a break point around year 7 to 11 depending on a bunch of factors every year after that you're in a better position in terms of the sustainability of these buildings and you know you've redeveloped sites from a different era and don't perform and don't meet today's standards and like don't have indoor outdoor amenity in many cases don't have air conditioning don't have laundry in the suites don't have dishwashers you know older lower ceiling heights they don't have a park They're, small windows probably yeah you know you've got a fence around the outside they haven't done any community benefits parquet and flooring everywhere yes there is a ton there is a ton <laughs> of parking from flooring. an environmental perspective yeah. if you if you have a say you're taking down a building with 250 units yeah. and then you build a building with 500 units well potentially 250 to 
500 people that could have been commuting yes. are now not commuting yes. because they're in a more centralized location, there, right? Yes. So therefore, then you're additionally you know, helping the environment by in, in that way. Right? Are you an analyst or something? Because this is this. <laughs> no, but but no. Seriously, you've hit the nail on the head. The biggest argument you can make in favor of infill housing is that houses don't get built in the suburbs. And between the energy intensity of a suburban house and the energy intensity of commuting patterns, the difference is enormous. Um, so, I mean, that's a, that is a huge part of it. Yeah. And uh, I mean, this is a little bit off topic, but I'm, I'm hoping that the, these changes in the affordability task force and mm-hmm. other ones that can, uh, that can um, you know, make changes to the planning process can allow for larger homes and to allow families to live in a, in the city, right? Me having three kids, right? And we're we're just about to start a renovation in our house. I thought you were going to say just about to have a fourth. Yeah, no. <laughs> I thought we were going you're there. You're first. Uh, I, I will have to do the snip snip at some point in time. I haven't been done, I've not done that yet. So still a little scared about people and scissors. And um, I totally lost my track. Oh no, I'm renov- I'm renovating my house, and we were you know looking for someone to st- to stay while they're while they're doing it, and I wanted to live in an apartment. I really wanted to live in an apartment because I, I wanted to live on one floor because we've been living in this four-story townhome for, for a decade. I'm like, I want to live in a single floor. I want to have uh, amenities in the building and a rooftop terrace. And yeah, we couldn't find anything, right? Yeah. There was just was nothing available. Well, uh, not with four bedrooms. Well, we needed three bedrooms. We wanted three bedrooms. I could deal with a 1,000 square feet, right? And, uh, and there just was was nothing available to rent and and yeah and we were at you know I'm willing to pay a fairly high number probably higher than many other families would have been willing to to pay and it's just not not available and and it just it just doesn't the city does not cater that well to anyone that's not rich right add on the fact if you wanted to put three kids in daycare it's be just as much as your <laughs> freaking rent is mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so yeah at one point in time i was paying you know more for for daycare than i was my mortgage right and, and we drove our kids to scarborough to get daycare because it was cheaper than in the city of toronto right so uh it is difficult to 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 think about trying to reduce commuting right and uh especially with what we're building right now in the in the city. So anyways, I don't know if there was a question there, but if there is any, feel free to comment on that little rant there. You know, the large unit thing I find is really interesting. I I think we're seeing a a little more of this in boutique projects for sure. Um, You know, I, I, I have been really happily watching the finishing construction touches on uh, 36 Birch Avenue. I think this is North drive. You can edit me on that if I got it wrong, but this is a four store. It's in the neighborhood's land use designation, and it's a four-story building. I think it's a skip stop. So there's an elevator, and there's a corridor at the ground floor and at the third floor. And these are large two-story towns, basically. And you either have like a roof deck, or you walk out to the street if you're on the front, or you have a little backyard terrace if you're on the back. And they're larger. I mean, they're they're very expensive, I think, by virtue of their location and level of finish and everything. But to me, that represents one of the possibilities of what could happen if the policy stranglehold on the neighborhoods continues to slowly and reasonably be relaxed. Like we've kind of gone through the accessory unit thing, right? You've got like the garden suites, you've got laneway suites. 
it's starting to open up, but the actual redevelopment of neighborhood properties into, you know, four-story duplex, triplex, fourplex, walk-up apartment, you know, you call it walk-up. I think these will more often be accessible. I don't know exactly where the threshold is for the code. That to me is, is an example of the the missing middle, right? Between like small units in big buildings and large homes and semis and so on. So so that to me is exciting. I think there's there is not a lot of room for like housing product, housing innovation, because by the time you go through the ringer of angular planes and urban design guidelines and a secondary plan and the process and, you know, the enormous escalating costs, a lot of condo developers really want to just like sell the product and move on. And, uh, you know, you see some developers with some courage and some backbone, like some of Tridel's large units at The Well, their signature series in uh, the Midrise building there. I mean, some of those are are huge and yeah. will be held back because yeah. I think you're going to have a hard time selling some of those on yeah. a pre-construction They did, did large units at their project at Eglinton and mm-hmm. uh, Don Mills as well, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. I was surprised at how mm-hmm. fast those were selling, right? So, Interesting. Yeah, they were, they're they're one of the only ones that really have the chutzpa to do it, mm-hmm. right? You know, I, I think I did a report for, for you just recently through, my, through Baker and we're just basically recommending the tiniest stuff that you could possibly imagine. And, and the market guy in me says the market is demanding this. We deliver the market, you know, what's being demanded and the only people that are buying their investors and pricing is 15, 16, 1700 bucks a foot. Mm-hmm. So to keep the pricing under a million bucks, it needs to be super small. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but the, the human in me, <laughs> the yeah. person that wants to have a good city, that's a viable city that, that has a mix of units and buildings. And it's not because if you only build buildings where the largest unit is 750 mm-hmm. square feet, then there is no moving within the building. There mm-hmm. is, all it is, is a first time buyer and a couple that's doesn't have kids yet. Right. And that's really the, all yeah. you're going to get in those buildings. And if that's all we're building in the entire city, then what's going to happen to our, our city. Yeah. So I'll uh, tell you, I'll tell you a story actually about a project I heard yesterday. It was sort of the flip side of that. It was in a very uh, high end neighborhood and they wanted to, we were talking about sweet mix. So how many one bed, how many two beds, how many studios? And the guy goes, I wouldn't do any of those. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, the price point here is to do 60 units that are all $6 million each. Wow. And I go, well, why don't you do, you know, a couple like 1 million or three, two, three? He goes, because the people who can afford it want to pay for it. And the people who can't afford it aren't there yet to pay for sort of like the 1200 or 1400 square foot unit. That's going to cost them $3 million. Yeah. And then the guys who are buying the $6 million unit, don't really want someone with a 600 square foot unit in their same building. Yeah, that's, so that's the problem. There's a there's a there's a part of the market where there's hardly any demand. Exactly, like there's a big right. gap, right? Like there's a, there's the group you just mentioned that that are going to buy anything. You see all these projects that have launched recently that say you can buy in the 600s, meaning like in six hundred thousand dollars. My <laughs> wife told me that the other day. She's like two hundred eighty seven <laughs> square feet. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that you know, there's the four or affordability just to get in, and then there's the gap and then there's you know the the wealthier 
snack bracket that can afford the bigger, more luxurious product. But but let I, me let me let me jump into real, real quick yeah. on a on a question because you're doing. I had a conversation just out of the blue with a guy that buys rental replacement in existing mm-hmm. condo buildings. So he'll go in and and buy them. Obviously, he runs the numbers because some of them are only have to be you know affordable for ten years or whatever. But uh, and so he said in the I think he has three of these projects, sixty some odd units. He said fifty percent of the people moved back in. All right. So he has some people in 500 square foot, brand new units. They're renting for like 740 bucks. All right. And, uh, and he said in his discussions with the city is it used to only be 20% of people would return to these, these new buildings. I mean, obviously the, the gap is huge, right? You know, we were, were back in my, uh, one of my old jobs, we were doing work for uh, Morgard on the Heath, on the Heathwood. And they had tore down the rental building there, but then they didn't start building mm. the new rental buildings for like six or seven years later. Right. They so get away with that. Are, I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. Maybe we should have someone on from Morgard or, yeah. uh, and, or I was going to shout out Jordan Morissuti from North drive. We should have, we have him on the show yeah. and describe 36, uh, 36 Birch. But, uh, it's just, you know, how are you, is that something you're trying to model internally and saying how many people we think are going to come back, how long we think they're going to stay, you know, h- how do you go about modeling something like that? It, it is, it is, uh, a black box. I mean, we will have more experience in this soon. We will have tenants making decisions, but we have modeled it, uh, it like in the financial modeling, we've modeled it conservatively because you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I think, you know, these are decisions that are made on people's individual life circumstances. And I don't know how you can generalize that. And yeah. like, this is the thing about rental replacement that we've, um, you know, tried to be really sensitive about is like, these aren't, you know, people are not widgets. These are human beings who are living, they're renting a home and through no fault of their own, their landlord has decided to redevelop the property. You know, they haven't done anything wrong now, not to say that it's wrong to redevelop a property, but that's, you know, we, we kind of try and come at this compassionately understanding that this is very surprising for people. I think the, the path that we have found through and, you know, our, our guru on this kind of has been Jocelyn Deeks at Bousefields on their community engagement team, who's done a lot of rental replacement work in the past. And, and the path that she has shown us is, is to communicate early and often have ways for people to contact you, be clear about what is happening, what is not happening when, and to work really closely with city staff so that there's no sunlight between you and staff because like there's a staff relationship with the tenants because the city in many ways negotiates sort of with or on behalf of the tenants you know the city is the party that keeps the developer accountable and ensures the policies are being followed etc but then there's direct tenant relationships to the developer as well and you know those those three parties need to all be on the same page. So, you know, there is a lot of policy and precedent around this. There is a path, there is a procedure, but there is, there is an extra level of sensitivity. And I think attention on files politically from planning, from tenants, from other residents who are not tenants in the building, because people care and don't want tenants to be 
stuck in a bad situation or not know what's coming when. And like, I just think that's fair. That's a reasonable concern to have. And I think the onus is on us to, to lay out the path and be fair and treat people right and follow the policy. And, and it has been, I think if we are doing our job right, people will understand when they have to make what kind of decisions, including whether to come back. I, I hope tenants want to come back because in many cases, well, no, in every case in rental replacement, there will be significant new aspects to life in this building that don't exist right now. In, during, during a long construction period, people put down roots somewhere else or life circumstances change. So, you know, to answer your question, I don't know how you model that. Yeah. We've, we've done it very, <laughs> we've done it very conservatively and, and ask me again in, in five to 10 years from now. Yeah. So, so what, so let me ask you, cause it is a hard question and I'm sure this is probably a hot topic for you, but we're talking about it so much. As, and, I, and I read a couple of the CBC articles and I think there was one in, uh, uh, the globe as well, but you know, they you kind of get like the typical, tenant i've been here for 10 years i'm a student i can barely afford my rent i'm paying 1100 i'm getting kicked out it's not fair you know like what is the what is what is the way to handle that with white gloves because you're right it's not wrong to be upset about being misplaced or being put out but it's also not wrong to redevelop i mean you have your your right to do it they have the right to be upset but how, how have you, is, is there like a middle ground where you can keep them happy or is it always like a lose-lose? Like, is there any win-win scenario? I like to create win-wins. Yeah. Um, I, the the role of, of city staff and city policy, I think, filled that gap. Yeah. There is, I mean, the Residential Tenancies Act, which, like the Provincial Act, has some minimums for if you're going to redevelop a property, I think you have to give three months extra notice and four months of free rent, or maybe it's vice versa. But the, the city's policies go far beyond that, which I think is fair enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, housing staff, which is a group within special initiatives policy and analysis within SEPA, within city planning, housing staff, um, you know, they, they, they run a tough negotiation to their credit. They say, these are our expectations and we've racked up a number of precedents that support this. And to them, the goals are, uh, you know, ensuring that no tenant is left without a place to live or without the means to find a place to live. They want to ensure. How do they do that though? Yeah. Like, well, that's it's difficult. Like if they're paying 10 year old rent, uh, you know, like yeah. two, two fifty a foot and current rent is four twenty five a foot. Uh, how do you, how do, what, is that your job? Like, do you have to assist in that? Or? Yeah. Tra traditionally the answer has been uh, a payment, like a cash payment far right. beyond what the residential tenancies act requires. And it has traditionally scaled. So if you've been in the building longer, uh, you, you get, get more, more months of free right. rent. And, uh, you know, the city also asks developers to cover uh, move out costs, move in costs. Have you done that typically? Uh, we, we have not to date struck any final deals, but we right. will. They will all include additional payments, additional notice, moving costs. And I, I think, you know, the I, I don't want to go too deep into the details here because we're starting to get into some of these details on files. Right. Um, but... One thing we've been pressed on by the city lately is, well, what if 
what if the traditional package is not enough and someone's on a fixed income or has a difficult financial situation and they can't find a place to live where the money you're going to provide them is going to cover the difference uh, for the time that they're not in the building? And I think that's a fair question. Um, you know, the, the details are going to be, well, sort of who is responsible for that gap. And, you know, the natural answer to that probably is the developer who's redeveloping the property. Like, I don't think that's an unfair conclusion or answer to that question. Is it expensive? Yes, it's expensive. But, you know, if it doesn't pencil, don't redevelop the property. If you can't redevelop property while treating people fairly, then like you shouldn't do it. Right. That's that's been our perspective. So far. Yeah. Yeah. Great answer. Great yeah, answer. No, I mean, there's a lot of people on uh, on Twitter who wouldn't uh, think developers would have that attitude. So it is nice to hear. And uh, uh, well, I got to say also, I, we we know we know there are a lot of developers who don't have that attitude. And I think that's problematic. Like going back to your comments earlier about you know, developers get a bad rap and no one defends developers. There are some, some, maybe a lot of developers out there whose entire frame of reference for everything they do is like, how can I extract the most amount of capital out of this piece of real estate as quickly as possible? Everything else is is a detail that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And like, of course, development's a business. Of course, like, like most other people, most like every other business, we're earning a return. But I, I just, don't share this view like like real estate matters too much to people's lives it's like where we live and spend our time it's not a widget it's not an equity it's not fixed income this is it's tangible right and so i just i i think we can get tarred with this brush of of the extractive developer and that's just like that's not my frame of reference the people i work with don't see it that way and and i've been lucky to work at organizations in the past where it's like you do well by doing good if you do it right if you work with the city understand what their goals are and try and find proposals that bridge the gap that everyone can go okay there's kind of something for everyone in here that that to me is like how i can sleep at night and you know you create the win-win like i mentioned like yeah. a win for the developer yeah, yeah. a win for the city and a, a win for the tenant we have a, we have one of our we're actually just going through a bit of a mission vision and values exercise at cameron stevens and one of them uh, one of the values we've always had is a win-win-win like the triple win the win yeah. for the company the win mm-hmm. for the investors and the win for the borrowers so it sounds like you guys probably inadvertently came to the same conclusion. Yeah. What's, what's interesting is people are talking a lot about, you know, charitable giving, right? And, and how is the best way to give away their money, right? And, and, and one of the philosophies is just earn to give, you know? I make a lot of money and then so I can choose where I want to, to give that money. And I think the perfect example is someone like Peter Gilgan from Madame Homes, right? Like they put a lot of money into being the best developer in terms of customer service and product. And they, you know, they, <laughs> they hire lots and lots of people to make sure that they're, you know, have the least amount of uh, deficiencies and everyone's happy. And, and yeah, it's been profitable for them because they made big bets. Right. But then he's taking that profit and giving hundreds of millions of dollars to hospitals and people are still angry at him because, you know, some subsidiary of his donated to, uh, 
some company that put ads on Facebook that supported Doug Ford. And it's just like, oh my God, he just gave $130 million to a <laughs> hospital and you don't even give 25 cents to that guy sitting in front of Tim Hortons. Like, how could you possibly be on that guy's back? But I mean, I, I just think the, that there's a lot of very, very generous people in, in our industry and uh, and that gets totally over overlooked, yeah. right? Because yeah. people just think that they've they've done something wrong to do it. You know, the market is what the market is. And if you charge that, then that's great because, uh, you know, at one point in time, the market will not be there and you will not be able to make any money. And there's several people that we know that were active at those points in time when, uh, when a lot of people went belly up. Right. So, but Tell to get, the, to get on, what's that? No, I have another question, yeah. but yeah, I, well, I was just going to, to, to move on to one of your, one of your partnerships and maybe we can, we can loop back to something on that, on that side of things. But, uh, you have a partnership with Tribute right now, Young and, and Sudan, man, why don't you tell us about that project and maybe how that relationship came, came together. Okay. So the best part of that project is our office is literally the next door building. Like we, we feel the shoring work. We feel every scrape of the detail excavation <laughs> when like the caissons getting cut back. And the neighbors complaining to the developer then? <laughs> we, we do have a direct line, uh, but, but we have, we have like a break room with, with windows that look right into the hole wow. and we're, uh, we're one level up and the hole is three levels down right That's now. Cool. And like, it, I don't think a day goes by where we don't look and I'll, I'll like call the super up and be like, what's that machine doing? <laughs> and he's like, oh, you're, you're warm inside right now looking from the window, aren't you? Yes, I am. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that is a deal that yeah, predates <laughs> my time at Ten Block. Um, you know, I think there's a longstanding relationship there, and uh, you know, at the time, this uh, there was not the in-house capability to to develop property, and I think that that was a uh, a learning experience for everyone involved, like in a good way. Could you find a partner who is uh, more competent at uh, at planning, development, and construction than Tribute? You know, they're tier one, for sure. And that's, you know, that's the kind of trusted partner you want, and um, I think that was maybe wet the appetite a little bit, and uh, I, you know, I don't know, I'm speculating here, but I think that was part of the decision to say, well, let's let's look at more of the portfolio and identify some more opportunities because that one turned out pretty well. It's a large uh, retail office podium and hundreds of new units across the street from a subway. It's a good looking building, you know, construction's underway. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see that one go up, but I am more of a spectator yeah. on, on that. And deal. is the plan to, uh, partner on future deals or you think you're going to go alone on a lot of these deals that you're going through the process? It's, on? it's a question we've been talking a lot about recently. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot coming down our pipeline, the zoning pipeline. Um, and this is a, you know, we've been, we've been hiring, but it's still a young and growing company. So I, I would say for the first couple of years and we're about, I'm about two years in now for the first couple of years, it's been a laser focus on like planning applications. And so those are in, those are cooking. The rubber is hitting the road on some of these files. We're making good progress. I think, you know, my, my belief that when you do good work, it'll get recognized by stakeholders in the city and so on. Like that's being borne out. Ultimately we're, we're getting good reactions on these. Of course you have to make revisions and so on, but anyways, it's been laser focused on planning so far, but the, the mission right now is to step back from that and get deeper into what next. Um, there, 
there is, we do have some properties that we're developing where there are longstanding uh, partners, uh, co-owners of the properties, um, some of which have significant and well-known capabilities in sales, marketing, and construction as well. You know, it's not it's not my place to advertise the names, but you you'd know them. And so in some cases, I think there would be some natural partnerships or sort of rotating in of mm-hmm. who the general partner running the project is. Uh, you know, we do have a desire to to build the capability, you know, we'd use third party brokerage and third party construction managers, but to run projects through and understand that uh, you know, as as you're building a team to prepare for that, you might move a little bit slower, um, but that that's an investment worth making. I think there's a possibility that there may be some sites where there's a sale or moving into a more passive partner position. I mean, with like a new outside partner. So it's sort of all doors are open. Uh, the, you know, we get some interesting inbound inquiries. We, there's a lot of existing relationships. Um, that's, that is the next phase of the business is, is okay. We're, we're really making some progress on these planning applications and it's time to map out the next steps forward. <laughs> In some ways, the fact that it takes so long to get something approved in the city gives you time to prepare your next steps. Like if zoning took six months, we'd be in a little bit of trouble right now, but uh, it doesn't take six months. Right. So we're, we, we actually have the time to, uh, to start having those conversations. Let's talk a little bit about zoning and uh, planning Mm -hmm. in the city. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know it's your favorite topic or one of them. And, uh, obviously you're on the, uh, the council for appeals and adjudication. So tell us a little bit about, uh, your motivation for joining that. And then let's go into a little bit uh, of, of your stance on what's going on with the city. And, sure. and then finally, tell us how you'd fix the problems. Oh, if you interesting. Were, <laughs> if you were the mayor. Interesting. The mayor. Okay, so so Property Standards Committee first. This is a, a public appointment. Uh, and this is like, I, I will preach on this one. I think anyone who is interested in civic life and being part of that in Toronto should go, you just Google Toronto public appointments and there are dozens or hundreds of opportunities that you apply for. It's like you apply for a job and you get an interview, you get told whether you're shortlisted or not. And then there's like a nominating panel that makes a recommendation to council. And I think, you know, I think there's a little bit of review at council, especially for major appointments. But for the most part, these is it are, a paid position? Uh, there, there's like a, a per diem. It's not. This is this what, is like forty bucks a week. It's. I would <laughs> hesitate to even call it a side hustle. Um, yeah, you know what? It's there is a time commitment. Uh, I'm spending probably a day per month total, about half a day preparing and reviewing files before they come up and then about half a day for a hearing. There's a little bit of training that happens. You know, it's how I learned about this was when I was working on the well, the third party signage, meaning like the advertising billboards, the electronic billboards. And I don't know if people realize there are going to be some major, major signs on the well at the corner of Front and Spadina. Those had didn't, to, didn't realize. Yeah, and, and you know what? I'd also learned through that course that I mean, like through working on that, that um, 
that is very valuable real estate billboards. I, I did not, I had just never come across billboards before, but leaving that aside, you know, that had to go to a committee called sign variance committee that I had never heard of. Like when you're getting approval for a sign, it's not zoning. It's not a planning act uh, application. It's like an administrative, I think it's a municipal code kind of application and went to sign variance committee and there were some appointed members. And I thought, you know, oh, this is really interesting. How do people get involved in this? And then I think the next year, I was like still quite a baby planner. I applied to be on Toronto Parking Authority board or something. I like set my sights high, did not even get an interview. <laughs> like, it was not happening. So, okay. So I stepped back, but I really started to research the opportunities and, and property standards committee is interesting because um, the bulk of the cases we hear are property owners who have appealed a property standards order from like a municipal enforcement officer. So like, oh, I don't know, like disrepair of a fence or, you know, an overgrown garden or a roof that a neighbor has complained about being not maintained properly. Or, you know, there's so many, there's so many things that fall under property standards and someone issues an order. And then if the property owner doesn't agree, they come to an appeal. So I sit on a panel with I'm the planner, there's two lawyers and there's an architect. So you've got like kind of all the tools you need. And we have this great chair who really knows her stuff. She's a lawyer. She knows her stuff and she, you know, she runs a tight ship. Anyways, it's just a way of seeing interesting cases, learning about a new part of the code and the law. I mean, I've had to look up the, uh, what is it called? The Fish and Wildlife Act, the (laughs) Endangered or the Endangered Species Act, Uh, you're in the building code. Um, It's it's kind of like hobby level, but it's also really important because people's livelihood, even in some cases, depend on on these decisions. uh, We had Brad Bradford on the show and mm -hmm. subsequently actually ended up going for a beer with him with a a couple of constituents of his in the beach. And uh, beaches, sorry, the beaches. <laughs> and he was telling me about some of the stuff he gets. And one of them was uh, one of his, one of the ladies on his street actually was feeding the raccoons. And the neighbors were all upset because the raccoons would come looking for food. And then when she stopped feeding them, where do you think they went? Next door into the neighbor's backyards and garbages. So have you seen, have you seen anything like that? I cannot comment on that. <laughs> so you know all about this it sounds like <laughs> let's move on <laughs> oh. he's, he's, he's at the center of raccoon gate he cannot uh, has he raccoon cannot gate not been settled <laughs> I can't comment <laughs> no I'm serious you know you, you, you gotta keep church and state divided oh, um, wow that's awesome. okay. let's move on to planning, planning. <laughs> Raccoons, that will have to be for another podcast. So, hang on. I got to get my pitch in. Everybody should go to Toronto Public Appointments, look through what's available, and apply and participate. I cannot tell you how much I have enjoyed and learned from doing this. I'm going to do it. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. There's there's (laughs) arena boards, there's community center boards, there's like police services board, there's, I don't know what else is on. Signed Variance Committee is recruiting people right now. Um, And these are, you know, little known, but 
important moments of civic engagement that, you know, especially as council is now cut in half, many of these committees used to have counselors on them, don't anymore. There are not enough counselors to sit in every room. Mm. And so this is a chance to kind of put up your hand and say, I want to be part of this big machine called Toronto and, and, and do my little part. So maybe I'll be be on the sign variance because I see some people like on Twitter, they get mad at the smallest things. And if there's some way I can make those people even more angry, that'd be great. Like if we could get larger sandwich boards that like, that like block the sidewalk. I'm going on the, we could get, we could get signs that are like not approved because that really upsets some people. I am on team counselor Matt Lowe on the sandwich boards. I like, I, they all deserve to go in the trash. And by the way, they violate the municipal code. I'm going to go on the uh, bike lane board and I am going to be the the only person trying to get rid of every bike lane in the city. Oh, and this was going. He's everyone. He's a, he's a cyclist. Yeah. So am I, I don't care. I like Why I, did we need bike lanes on university? <laughs> in the middle of lockdown, when no one was paying attention, some of these guys with their civic duty decided that we needed bike lanes on Young Street when it's already two lanes. You know, it takes I'm me massaging my 25 right minutes to get from my house to your house, probably, which is like a block on Young Street. 25 I, minutes. And it would be about eight minutes on a bike, by the way. I know. I, I should get a bike now because I have no choice. Bike. That is the answer. I know, especially I today no when it's minus. You didn't bike today because of why it's too cold too much snow and there's a lot of ice and it's not safe can't bike honestly it's funny we had this discussion with brad bradford i would love to bike more but i just don't think it's safe because even with the bike lanes i just don't trust drivers yeah. right and then in the winter ah it's too damn cold i don't want to i don't want to ride my bike either right so so i i like that people do it and i think it's great for the environment but i like biking too i just i just don't think it's practical when i'm in a suit and tie and i have to go to a meeting uh <laughs> yeah. to, to bike yeah. and it's, it's crazy you got all these cars lined up there's no one on the bike lanes so it's it just frustrates me but to go to go from black camel like rosedale subway station to somewhere between just north of of Summerhill lcbo on young street at like three o'clock in the afternoon it took me almost 40 minutes it is, it is interesting. I don't know how they decide what gets it and what doesn't. Like, uh, they put bike lanes on Woodbine near near me. I, I don't mm-hmm. mind the Woodbine. And but. lots of one, lots of people are going south of Girard on the bike lanes, but the bike lanes go north all the way up to like O'Connor, and there's like never, mm-hmm. ever, ever, ever anyone in those yeah. bike lanes ever. <laughs> I've seen like, and I drive up that street all the time. It doesn't really impede traffic because there's not a lot of traffic there, but it just seemed like a weird choice to put the, the bike lanes there because there's literally I think the Sherburne bike lanes there. are brilliant. I think that was a great choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's great bike lanes. I just think they kind of, it was a bit sneaky. I should have been on the board. It's my fault. I didn't live up to my Get civic involved. duty. It's my own fault. <laughs> and I should have been there during COVID, shutting down the University Avenue bike lane and the Young Street bike lane. Anyways, carrying on. Let's talk about planning. Yes. Uh, so, so what's going on in this city? Yeah. Like, we got problems. <laughs> okay. So we need more housing. Can't get it it's your fault (laughs) (laughs) you know i think the i think prices are a symptom um of of a problem i i gotta say i think there is a problem with the toronto official plan i think it actually does many things very well i actually think on balance like toronto planning policy is good but i think the neighborhood's portions of the official plan in Toronto are like a big problem. They are so locked down that 
any kind of development that comes near a neighborhood, that's like a capital N neighborhood, the stuff that's yellow on the official plan land use map, um, there, there are, there's an arsenal of uh, tools and a fortress of protection in the official plan that is built around keeping the neighborhoods exactly as they are. And there are little, there are little changes happening, you know, like city planning has this, this Ehon, it, what is it? Expanding housing options in neighborhoods. This is a review that's happening now. Uh, it led to laneway housing. It's now led to garden suites, but these are, these are sort of fiddling around in the margins. They are an important part of the equation, but you've got a city that is, starving for housing supply and most of the land area of the city really cannot be touched and in fact populations are shrinking because houses that used to have multi-generational families in them or used to be rooming houses or used to be a, a duplex or something are being converted into single family homes more often than the opposite so like i learned recently for example that the annex bounded by Bathurst to DuPont to uh, what's the east side of this? I think Young Street. No, Ruby Avenue Road. Avenue, Avenue yeah, Road. Yeah. yeah. So Bathurst to DuPont to Avenue Road to Bloor has steadily shrunk in population from 1971 to present. It has gone down consistently. Yeah. Think about it. All those big old red brick houses that had six, yeah. seven rooms in them that were all occupied, bought by a, a young couple gutted, renovated, yeah. then they have two occupants. So six to two, maybe they have one kid. Also like Canadians in general aren't having as many kids yeah. anymore, right? So yeah. you have families living in these big houses with one or maybe two kids. It's not like they're having four to five kids. And so you, like you see an extraordinary concentration of, of housing in the centers, right? The city's fight, like in the urban structure, there's five centers. It's North York, downtown, Etobicoke, Scarborough, and Young Eglinton. Those are the five centers. So it's a lot of policy that supports intensification in those areas. And if you look at an aerial, did you guys see that tweet that Chris Hadfield uh, sent out? He sent out a picture that he took out the window of a plane flying into or out of Billy yeah, Bishop. Yeah, got all the, got all the urbanists. Oh, all my God, up. that thing was on fire. But Why? Because it, it's just was such a low-density city. It shows the extreme concentration in a few areas, and then just like, it's like a suburban Well, 75% of Toronto yeah. is low-density, I think, or yeah. se- almost 80. And so the official plan is doing exactly what it intended to do, which is to concentrate growth into the centers, a little bit onto the avenues where there's mid-rise. And, you know, there's some other areas where people do get approval, like the Kings, for example, you can build towers in the Kings, but the neighborhoods really have not. Sorry, what's the Kings? The Kings is like a King West and King East. There was a, a planning in it when these were, uh, you know, really uninhabited areas of warehouses and parking lots and like industrial right. lands. There was a smart push from City Hall and from planning Oh, in the... 80s or 90s to to pave the way for the king so they changed the land use to regeneration areas and they relaxed high permissions and you know it, it worked look at look at king west and the same thing is happening in king east now so you know there's the kings and there's some other areas of intensification but i think the untouched mass of the city where not only can you not build a tower but in many cases you can't even like build a duplex you can't even build a four-story or a three-story apartment building or a triplex you're not allowed to do anything that changes the character of the area which is like a 
really a way of freezing a neighborhood in, in amber, casting it in amber so it can't change. I just think this is a problem at a time when we need more housing supply. And you know what? Like, I'm just going to skip over the question of do we need more housing supply? Like, Ian, Ian Underwood said this recently. There was that uh, School of Cities hosted with the Board of Trade a follow-up meeting to the Housing Affordability Task Force. And to Ian's credit, Ian, the CEO of Habitat for Humanity, GTA, who was one of the panel members, one of the task force members, uh, she really laid down the gauntlet. And, and if anyone disagrees with this, like you should go watch what she said, that we, we are beyond the question right now of whether there is a supply crisis in Ontario and in Toronto. There just clearly is. And, and if you don't believe that, like I, I can't do anything for you. The, the evidence is deep and wide. And this has been studied by people from every angle, from third sector to government, to private sector. Anyway, so moving on, the fact is there is a housing supply crisis and the, the official plan does not allow housing to be created in Toronto except in the most intense forms. And, you know, there there is a logic to this. The, the advice I will often give people who are frustrated with a with a planning policy situation is, you know, don't just chafe against it. Ask yourself, why was that policy written? Like, what is the point of that policy? There are not a lot of dumb people who work at the city of Toronto. Like, the planning department is a sophisticated, well-educated, experienced group of people who write policy for a reason. I think they get it wrong sometimes, but I think more often they get it right. And when they get it wrong, it's usually a good intention that I think has had either an unintended consequence or a consequence that they don't care about enough, like like an affordability issue. So I think the official plan had good intentions when in the 90s iteration of the plan that really locked down the neighborhoods. It had been moving that way, but it really got locked down. And the idea was, let's not just make Toronto generic city. Like the neighborhoods are special. They're worth protecting. Tree-lined streets, a place to rise a, raise a family. You know, let's, let's not have developers go into the middle of Rosedale or Cabbage Town or or, you know, pick your favorite neighborhood and buy a bunch of houses, tear them down and build a tower. Like, I understand why there was a resistance to that and saying, let's use policy so that the city has a structure so that we have the highest amount of density and built form at key intersections and commercial centers and transit. And then, you know, along the avenues where there are streetcar routes or in the case of Bloor Danforth, you know, a subway. Boy, have they really missed the opportunity on that. You know, let's do some mid-rise. Like, I, I get it, but the effect has been has been too great. You know, the extreme concentration of housing supply in tight towers and tight situations. I just don't think it's fair that the only place that you can live if you're coming to Toronto as a student or a new Canadian or, you know, a migrant within Ontario, you're moving downtown for a job or school or whatever, is in a small apartment or condo in a concentrated center, really there's no opportunity for you to enjoy a neighborhood. And people who bought in neighborhoods decades or even a decade ago now have their investment protected, promoted, and boosted by policy so that the gap is now unattainable. Like unless you earn an extraordinary income, you cannot buy into a neighborhood anymore. Like the door has closed. And like, I think that's a problem and that land use policy is, is the cause. Uh, it's, it's, it, I was just working on a study near the Dover court area, Dover court and, and Bloor area. There's essentially been no, and even 
you know, just taking out the neighborhoods, there's really been no condominiums built between Bathurst and Dufferin on Bloor Street. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, you know, one terrible looking project at Christie, you know, there's 707 Dover Court, there's, you know, B Street, which is Bathurst and Bathurst uh, and well, another B, B Street. <laughs> and obviously you've got the, the um, Honest Ed site, but it's just unbelievable, right? And then you think of the, the I mean, we talked about many times on this show, the lack of projects anywhere from, uh, you know, on the Danforth, <laughs> really all the way to, to Maine. Now they're actually getting some high rises near, you know, near me at Maine and uh, Danforth, right? But it's just unbelievable that even those areas, because they back onto a neighborhood, mm-hmm. it's not that you can't even build in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. you can't even look into the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. am rich, therefore you can't look in mm-hmm. my backyard. Which is just the most absurd thing. You know, well, that was the, that was the Margaret Atwood uh, argument when Altera was trying to build on uh, <laughs> DuPont there. So they yeah. had a two-year battle because four units in the condo were going to look into like eight rich people's backyards. Yeah. <laughs> you know, angular planes are, are like... Aren't the, they a thing of the past? <laughs> you know, like, no. no, no, they're not. I, I think they should be. I think the angular plane is one of the most problematic tools of planning practice. I, I hesitate to even call it planning practice. This idea that... doesn't make any sense. I've heard, though, that the city is... And I'm not... I was, no, I wasn't yeah. kidding. Like, I, I thought... I had heard in a meeting this week, was with a developer, who the whole, like, step back wedding cake effect was was sort of being phased out. That I think the conversation is starting. Like there was a Danforth planning study meeting, I don't know, a month ago or something like that, when I, I was not there. I heard about it from someone who was there. And as I understand it, a lot of people were talking about, well, the angular planes that you're going to require people to do on the back of these mid-rise buildings are going to make the projects non-viable and they're going to be taller and the unit layouts are going to be worse and the sustain it like the efficiency of these buildings is going to be worse and it's more expensive to build it's more expensive it takes to longer build. to build yeah, absolutely All, these things go to fewer housing units at greater cost of worse layout with less uh, sustainability and for what again i go back to this question you know this an ang- angular planes became a big part of the mid-rise typology in Toronto for a reason. What was the reason? Well, one of the reasons was on the front of the building. Uh, They wanted there to be, I think it's five hours of sunlight on the opposite sidewalk in the middle of the day on the equinoxes in the middle of March, in the middle of September. I kind of get that principle. You can achieve that by having a building that is the same height as the width of the right of way. And maybe there's a step back on the top floor to give a little bit of a of a visual relief and a little bit of variety. I, I actually get that. I think the front half of the mid-rise guidelines is basically right. 80% of the right of way, and then you take a step back. It, it frames the street well. You keep sunlight on the street. Okay, fine. But on the back, basically you take a 45-degree angular plane from the property line at the back. It, it's not quite that because you do, you know, you come in, then you go up. So it's, it's not quite that. But the, the angular plane on the back is designed to keep the mass of the building away from the neighborhoods in the back. Uh, Why? To protect the neighborhoods. Why? Because there are people in the neighborhoods who don't want to be affected by new buildings. Okay. And why do we build policy around them? Well, because they're rich and powerful is the answer. And they vote and they organize and they occupy residence associations. I'm on a residence association, but I'll call a spade a spade. You know, most residence associations are anti-development and not 
productive. I, I don't think most is fair. I think many is fair. Um, I, I just don't think that the trade-off between pissing off a few people who decided to buy a house, by the way, like one property away from Bloor or Danforth, to use this example, yeah. and near a subway station and enjoy all the benefits of that, right? They get the public benefit of Main Street retail and subway and everything else, but they don't have to pay any of the cost being living near slightly larger buildings and living near other human buildings, uh, human beings. And they might have a little bit of more shadow on their properties. Well, you know, I, I just don't think that the trade-off is fair, that we're going to basically demand a shape and type of building that's not viable and actually not a good product because it might piss off a few people who live nearby, despite all of the things I just said. And so we have to shape the entire policy so that mid-rise buildings defer to the neighborhoods behind them. That's crazy. You know, this doesn't, this is out of balance to me. It's out of whack. That's the big question that we can't really seem to get to. And I don't think there's an answer, but... I, I part, partly the reason what I think you've got these wards and you've got a counselor in each ward who wants to be reelected and all they care about is their constituents and the votes like you mentioned. And, and until you take planning above and outside of that, like I don't understand how these guys are going to ever you hear like the Matlows of the world using every tool in my toolkit to fight development in my neighborhood. I like to abolish uh, single family zoning. That's, yeah. the, that's, the, that's what we have to do. Four stars everywhere. Hey. Or, or you just need someone from the province uh, to, t- to take it on. I mean, all these contentious files go to the tribunal anyways, which is managed by the province. So I just don't, I don't think the ward system with the counselors having, the other thing is like you look at a one ward next to the other ward and you have a pro-development counselor in one on the left side of Victoria Park and on the east side, on the west side, on the east side of Victoria Park, you have a, a different counselor and you get, you can get a tower on that side of this, uh, on the east side of Victoria Park, <laughs> but on the west side, it's all low ride, just b- simply based on who, who was elected yeah. and the elected official. Like it, it doesn't make any sense. Speaking of based, based Bradford, as he gets called by the more neighbors crowd, you know, your former guest counselor, Bradford, this is someone who is a planner, came up through city planning, has seen the good and the bad from the inside, and to his credit, has stuck his neck out on a number of files to uh, promote and stave off the critique of supportive housing, transit-oriented development. And there's a couple interesting, I think there's a few interesting policy pilot programs happening in his ward. Yeah, there are. Like he's said to staff and to his and to his colleagues on council, like, let's try it in, yeah. in Beaches East York. And he's that's, got some great ideas. That's brave politically. Even, even he had the outdoor live music on the sidewalk, and that was one of his big things that he pushed. And the bike lanes, I know he, yeah, right, whatever. He did a good job with a few bike lanes, but whatever. <laughs> uh, but no, it's shifting, right? Like, the conversation is starting to shift, and I'm encouraged by this. Like, I just saw today that AOC, you know, this celebrity congressperson in the U.S. from New York, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is now like a full-throated yimby. Yes, in my backyard. She has figured out that there are political votes and energy and capital to be gained. And it's also good policy to be part of a system that builds housing. And we're starting to see this in other parts of the U.S. But more importantly, it is happening in Toronto. I am feeling a shift right now. And like the shift is not like screw everybody, screw planning, like build whatever you want anywhere. Like that's not the point at all. The point is to have these 
complicated conversations about like what's not working, what's not fair, how might we fix it. I think the housing affordability task force is part of that, but you've got some really smart writing happening. Alex Bazikovich from the Globe was out ahead of this for a long time. Like he was writing in the lonely wilderness yeah, for he's, years. He's brilliant and he's brave. He's brave and he's one of the few writers who like gets the whole picture and not just like a little slice. Like for right. a, I think I think his title or his job is architecture critic, but he's actually managed to wrangle and understand like the whole land use. We should get system. him on the show. Yeah, that'd be a great guest. Yeah, yeah, I, he's he's definitely controversial, and and he he's, he sticks his neck out, right? Like he's 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 walking the line of being on being too much on the side of the evil developer, but then also he's walking the side of being on the the uber lefties mm-hmm. or that are like financialization and they're not building the right supply. Supply for whom? Supply for whom? As if 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 developers built all two thousand square foot units, we'd be in a better position right now. It's just uh, absurd. But uh, anyways, it's uh, we could probably talk about this for another thirty minutes. But I think we we're almost at our almost at our hour. But we're uh, we're we're almost at our almost at two hours. (laughs) (laughs) We usually we we usually try and cap it at like an hour ten, and we we've been chatting, and I I got a lot more questions, so we might have to have you back. Because yeah. this has uh, been great. But you're, you're, fire you're getting, away. Speed you're getting this side in here. Yeah. He knows about the rapid fire. So, yeah. uh, let's, you first? You want to jump in or I me first? See. I got some of the sun okay. in my eyes. So. Okay, rapid fire questions. Okay. Let's Short go. answers, no long answers. Are we in a housing bubble in Ontario? That's a long pause. <laughs> uh, no, the no. short answer is no. Okay. Is immigration too high in Canada? No, it is our lifeblood and our secret weapon. You're right, fucking right, buddy. I like that. Is greed good? We don't tell these people curveballs. We can't yeah. just give them softballs. Yeah, all the time. you're right. You're right. No, I'd say like healthy commercial competition, a desire to do well, profit, yes, but greed is when you spill over to not caring about the effects of what you do, and I don't think that's right. That's good. That's good. <laughs> this is a good. This is a good one. I like this. How one. serious do you have to be about cycling before you buy a head-to-toe spandex outfit? <laughs> Depends on your age and how big your belly is. I know <laughs> these old white guys with their big bellies rolling around. I don't know how they get into spandex. <laughs> well, the other thing too is when you have a belly like that, like the spandex, like the spandex when you're going like peak speeds, right? So like you got, and then they're like, oh, I got to wear this spandex because it's lighter, and then they get these two water bottles full of ice, and it's like all of a sudden you're. Eight ten thousand dollar bike yeah. that you save like a half a pound to buy. You just put it's, like it doesn't make any sense. It's not helping. None of this makes any sense. Okay, will Doug Ford win the next election? Ooh. I think he probably will. No, I, I thought I thought you'd be more uh, interesting. The Liberal government voted against banning foreign buyers. Good or bad decision? Is this the federal liberals? Federal yeah. liberals, yeah. Feds. I think they just pulled back on that. Yeah. Yeah, they just voted like I think it was yesterday, right? Yeah. Not to do it. Um, no, I, I would say that like I get where it comes from, but just build more homes. Exactly. That is the easier path. Okay. So, uh, oh, did you, uh, this is my turn. What percentage of housing built in the GTA should be government-owned affordable housing? 
I think it would be great for society if we started seeing some big public housing construction, like 5%, 10%. Let it rip. Cool. You only have space in your project for a co-working space or a gym. Which do you choose? Gym. Gym. I would go gym, too. Yeah. Okay. 10 Block decides to open two new offices in Calgary and Halifax, and you get to choose which one to move to. Which one do you choose? Toronto. <laughs> Good answer. Because right, th- we are the Toronto Under Construction Podcast. You don't want to move to Calgary or Halifax. There's one more question, but I have to go back to something we wrote earlier. And, and Ben, I have no idea where this came from, but it's from your notes. And I, I think it's the hilarious question you, you wrote. Are you a threat to national security and the future vaccine supply in Canada? Tell us what you can about this situation. <laughs> Yes, what, I didn't get to that. that what, was a what is, what is, where does that come from? What am I missing here? Uh, I, I, a good fr- friend of mine suggested that we should call our two tower project the double agent. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, the, the shorter answer is no, it's not a threat to national security. Um, yeah, I'll just stop there. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, uh, someone complained, uh, a company that's expanding their facility to build to, to build vaccines, they're yeah. complaining about one of his projects, that spies might live there and overlook his, his project. And that is legit. Someone wrote that in an article and complained about that. So that was a great spot to, to, to leave it <laughs> off. Yeah, let's end <laughs> So, uh, yeah. if uh, you've got a lot to say, a lot of good opinions, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Where are they find you? What's ten blocks? What's it's? it's is there come a knock on the door. I'm I'm so over COVID. We're at thirty Sudan Ave, Suite two hundred. I swear, come knock on the door. Let's go grab a coffee. We're Beautiful. Ten, ten block Beautiful. I might I might come and for you, a coffee. And you're and you're you're, you're secretly tweeting under the ten block. Twitter account. It, it is mostly me. So I'm, I'm not actually off, off Twitter. Per se. <laughs> you got drawn back in. Well, we, we appreciate your time. And Thank you so fun. much. I feel like we didn't even get into half the questions that we had for you. I so know. we'll definitely have to have you back in the future when uh, when you have a couple of these buildings completed and you can look forward we, and to we it. Can, we can discuss some <laughs> how you dealt with some of the issues uh, that, yeah. uh, that we, we brought on here. I'd so. love to do it. Thanks so much. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye.